0: Say our prayer to the Holy Spirit. (coughs) In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, O Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Well, I had to go to confession this morning to Father Patrick, and to confess that I had fallen once again, because I got up early in the smor- this morning and said Mass privately when I had promised that I would take part in your Mass uh, after lunch. In the old days and even today, the priest giving the retreat ought to appear at the altar with the retreatants. And I should have given you the plenary indulgence um, as is normally done. But unfortunately, any of you over 70 will know, things don't work out the same uh, when you're getting near the end. It's not holiness, it's my bladder that makes me get up at five in the morning. (laughs) And once you're up, then I find I say mass alone much better than I say it in public. I used to love the liturgy and still on occasion perform, but as you get old and you've got bifocals and you can't see the step properly and you've got a bad knee, uh, then you're already miserable before you even get to the first prayer. And then I find with the modern alb, you feel as though you were going to have surgery they've been through a washing machine and are radioactive, and they seem to have pockets in the wrong direction, and so I can never find my handkerchief. So while I'm doing this and this, all the ladies in the the congregation think I've got fleas. (laughs) And I find also that sometimes at my age you begin to cry. I don't think that's holiness either, but it's a disaster if you can't find your handkerchief. And so, therefore, I find St. Philip Neri, funnily enough, was the same, that he spent the whole day with people, but he did like to say Mass alone. And as he used to cry at Mass, he used to have to ask all the devout people to go and sit at the back. I haven't got as far as that yet, but (laughs) there's still time. (coughs) (laughs) So I'm very sorry I won't be at your Mass, though I'll be here at the back. And... Uh, the plenary indulgence I've spoken to you about already. I started the retreat by saying by the communion of saints I mean that all the members of the church on earth in heaven and in purgatory are in communion with each other as having one body in Jesus Christ. And the indulgences are part of the communion of saints. It's to do with mor- mortgages and overdrafts of the bank. That just as in family life, the rest of the family would help if you're broke, (laughs) Uh, at least once after that they'll say something to you, Um, so too in heaven you can't imagine that St. Elizabeth Seton uh, or somebody like that won't help people in Maryland where she's buried. And that therefore if I've done harm in my life, I can count on her and on the other saints uh, to help me. We've got to pray for the Pope's intentions. An indulgence is for the Pope, Pope gives it for those who make retreat, because a retreat is a tremendous effort. There's the cost, there's coming to this house and giving up a weekend, which is tremendous, leaving somebody else to look after the children, there's my own trouble in coming here, there are the staff who wait the whole week to help you, and the ladies in the kitchen who, to me, as I said earlier, they and the Blessed Sacrament seem to make the house. They don't change. And therefore, the Pope gives a plenary indulgence at the end of the retreat, uh, but you must pray for his intentions. We pray for his private intentions now that he's wounded, but his public intentions are the reunion of Christendom and peace in the world. So I think we ought to be careful to fulfill that and then we go away from this retreat better than when we were born. We're in the state of grace and all the harm we've done is gone. People today, some priests even, deride indulgences. They're part of the doctrine of the Church. They're not a pious act at all. They're this strange thing that we are one body and so we ought to treasure it. And thank God that the indulgences haven't gone metric yet. (laughs) Now, this retreat also has been strange for me and for indeed for um, the priests here because nobody quite knew who was going to turn up. Father had no intention of having a retreat this weekend and I had no intention of coming here. Mrs. Hungate of the Holy Redeemer Parish who's been very kindly doing my program for years, she just wrote to Father Petrick, who she'd never met, and said that I would be in the neighborhood. So he made a great act of faith, hope and charity, and said, okay, then we'd have a retreat with Father Bassett. He had an awful feeling. He didn't know what my friends would look like. Before you arrived, we were all wondering whether they'd all be alcoholic. <laughs> or all mental, or all ex-Jesuits, we didn't know what was going to turn up. <laughs> and when I heard, I didn't know either, because I only know about two of you by name, uh, but I was astonished that so many people came. And also that, in a way, the retreat has been so friendly. And one, there's a, it's wonderful what the staff do, and how easy it makes it for me. I was very ashamed really that I couldn't see more of you, though I have met a good number. But as I recorded, and as I had to get my material to fit into half an hour each talk, and had to take it seriously, just not not repeat myself, obviously I was under a strain which you wouldn't be in an ordinary retreat. And then unfortunately, most of you are so holy that I've lost all my material. In most retreats, you presume that everybody is a swine who has committed many sins. So then you simply plug sex, and you plug that, and and everybody gets counselled on sin, and everybody has a very good time. Because sex is interesting. Holiness is a total disaster. If I told you before you came the Father was going to talk on holiness, you'd have all rung up to say that your wife was ill. But the odd thing is, I can't have feeling that it was luck that not knowing what to talk about, uh, I chose a subject that I've never spoken about before. And I'm sure it's the right one. Then again, I'm in great trouble because everybody who meets me said, Oh, Father, we've heard your tapes. One lady in the audience here today came in and said how the Benedictines had recommended her to listen to these tapes, and then two weeks later the Carmelites had. So I thought, oh God, bang goes my talk on the Holy Ghost, and bang goes <laughs> the passion of our Lord. And then somebody else said, Oh, Father, we heard you at Georgetown Prep, and I think, oh hell, that's gone too. <laughs> I'm almost down to the mind of prophets to find anything to say. <laughs> so I chose the subject that as I did, never was spoken about before, that meant everything to me since I formed my parliament when I was about eleven. I've never talked about it before in public, uh, but I felt at any rate, nobody's heard this on tapes yet. (laughs) So therefore it is difficult to, you see, if you'd uh, committed great sins, if somebody came and said they'd murdered a papal nuncio, uh, then the Jesuits on the staff would have a whale of a time helping you, encouraging you. (laughs) (laughs) But when a person comes who's done nothing wrong, then what do you do? You talk on holiness. So that was really my problem here. I am aware, too, that I know most of you by one way or another. I've been very touched to meet two or three people, I don't know their name, from St. Raphael's in Rockville, because I gave a mission there years ago, and because of that mission, they came. And then a lovely person came to see me who was at the communion breakfast when I spoke on that wonderful book Lord of the World by Robert Hugh Benson. I spoke on it at the communion breakfast because this was the book that Father Teilhard de Jardin read in the trenches when he was a stretcher bearer and from it he derived the whole of his theory. Well this lady said that after the communion breakfast she'd gone to the library and then they'd take them months and months they produced a copy. She read it twice and was as shaken as I was by it. Well, you have no idea what a joy it is when somebody uh, remembers what you said five years ago and actually does something about it. I said to you in this retreat, as Newman said, I can no more think with a mind not my own than I can breathe with lungs not my own. And in the retreat, whether you did it here, and many prayed like anything or were very silent, whether you did it prayed here or later when you go home, until you take a text or a book or whatever it is and make it your own, it's second-hand. And many sermons today don't go down because they are second-hand, that the preacher hasn't actually done anything about them, but crib them. And that's why I was very touched when anyone who came to see me, and I know a lot of you now, some made a retreat with me, a Georgetown Prep, a very little teeny weeny one, only about ten people. I, I know many of you now and that's why you did me a real kindness in not coming to see me during the retreat. Um, one or two did. I knew in this lovely house that there were other priests, very earnest, anyone with any questions or troubles uh, could go away with their problems solved and I could still go on plugging away at holiness. So now today we come to the last stages of holiness and I thought it would be worthwhile we've not got 15 minutes has already gone and I haven't started yet. In the back of my book uh, and would you believe it I wrote an epilogue which thrilled me and I'm sure nobody's read it so it may thrill you. There, are, there were three great statesmen who kept what we call a commonplace book. You know, a, n- a notebook, a diary, which nobody saw but himself. It used to be very fashionable. Pepys's diary was one of them. He never showed anybody. He actually wrote in shorthand, and his diaries were only found 100 years later. Quite the funniest of diaries in the world. He- it was entirely his own, done in private. Well, there are three statesmen who kept private diaries and they give us a very good picture of holiness and how we can develop. The first man was the Emperor Marcus Aurelius. Now, he was a pagan Roman. He was a Stoic. He became Roman Emperor and reigned for 19 years, perhaps the last of the great ones, well ahead of Constantine. Marcus Aurelius Uh, led his soldiers and spent much of his life keeping the Huns out of the Danube. He was a Stoic and all he had was the state religion. As emperor, he had to turn out for the Feast of Juno and Neptune and Jupiter. He had to open birds and look at their entrails and all the sad paraphernalia of ancient Rome. He had a state religion like your president has and our queen has, where you turn out and do the right thing. It didn't satisfy him. In private, he became a stoic, and in place, he didn't he didn't drop the state religion, but in private he had what he called the universe, nature. And he wrote marvelous prayers to nature and how he would accept anything that came in life because it was conformable to nature. There are thousands of people here in Washington, that's about all they've got, is the beauty of a garden and little birds, and they all have ferns growing everywhere, with spiders established in all of them, and uh, this is what all they've got. You get older, and the little birds and all these things, nature speaks to you. But as he got older still, and he was on the Danube, and he knew, I think, he was going to die soon, Uh, then he suddenly went one further than nature. And when he knew he was dying, right out in the marshes on the Danube, he wrote a most marvellous prayer which no saint in the Christian church could have bettered. I find it most moving to read. It's only short. He says, he wrote in his book, his private meditations, in your drama of life, Three acts are all the play. Its point of completeness is determined by him who formerly sanctioned your creation and today sanctions your dissolution. Neither of these decisions lay within yourself. Pass on your way then with a smiling face under the smile of him who bids you go. He's already got down to him. And he says, leave the stage with a smiling face under the smile of him who bids you go. Any Christian could say that. We mean more by him than poor Marcus Aurelius did, but how he came to that, I don't know. His only link with the church, he didn't know our Lord, he never heard of a Christian, but he did have the good luck to die on the feast of St. Patrick, 800 years before that great saint lived but he's a marvellous man and St. Ambrose for one St. Thomas More for another many Christians all over the world the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, totally pagan, you suddenly see something happening where nature and the universe and Jupiter and Neptune turned into a smiling somebody saying to him come and he went off, left this world smiling. That's the first step, and if you want to get other people to come to the faith, maybe Marcus Aurelius would be the first step on their program. Many of our friends haven't got as far as he did. The second great man was the statesman Dag Hammarskjöld, who died, after all, not all that long ago. uh, Dag Hammarskjöld was a Swede, He made his career as an economist and as a banker. His parents, his father's side, were all army men. His mother's side were devout Lutherans. Marcus Aurelius was nominally a Lutheran. He didn't really practice, but he was a good man. He had troubles with sex, I imagine. At least he never married. He was a loner. And he made a great reputation as prime minister, and he was an honorable man, but rather sad, like in my own country, Mr. Heath, a good man trying his hardest. Well, he got very depressed, as all people do, who haven't got any religion, really, and then he thought of suicide. And then he wrote this lovely line, which is so, applies even to you and me on retreat. Too tired for company, you seek a solitude, you are too tired to fill. His book Markings sold over a million copies in the first year, though they, they were entirely godly. Just shows how starved for religion uh, the public are. That it, why anyone would have read Markings, but they did. Well, in his Markings, and they're only little jottings usually, he put down an extraordinary thing. In 1952, he wrote down in his private book. "'What I ask is absurd, that life shall have a meaning. "'What I strive for is impossible, "'that my life should acquire a meaning.'" He had nothing. He saw no meaning to getting old, and he saw no meaning to life, and thought it was ridiculous to expect one. That was 1952. In 1956, the Pentecost, he wrote down, Once I answered yes to someone or something and from that hour I was certain that life, that existence was meaningful and that therefore my life in self-surrender has a goal. He said, Once I said yes to someone or something. Where Marcus Aurelius only had nature smiling at him, Dag Hammarskjöld had but somebody or something, and he said yes and surrendered himself, and then suddenly he had a meaning. His last years as Secretary of United Nations was spent in immense frustration trying to keep that absurd place going, but total self-sacrifice flying all around the world, talking to statesmen, trying to keep the peace, and he died in a plane crash, as you know, his last years were happy. He had come to saying yes to someone or something. You can't have feeling it was happened at Pentecost uh, that it may well have been the Holy Spirit. The third great statesman of course is Sir Thomas More, the Lord Chancellor of England. He of course had the most extraordinary thing. Marcus Aurelius was happy when he died. He caught some germ, the whole army was decimated. He died of fever, asking his assistants, as though he was emperor, to look after the other soldiers and leave him alone. He died of fever. Dag Hammarskjöld died in an air crash, having said yes to somebody. Thomas More didn't die in an accident. He laid down his life which is the difference between a saint and a and a Stoic. Thomas More never need have died. He said yes to somebody who was God. And he had what we've been talking about in the retreat, holiness. Even as a little boy. Do you remember how Shakespeare wrote All the World's a Stage? It's a marvellous meditation, but I've done it on my tape, so that's gone for good. But The strange thing is that Thomas More wrote All the World's A Stage about 60 years before Shakespeare. Shakespeare was a lapsed Catholic. Shakespeare's father suffered a lot for the faith, and his master became a Jesuit. That poor Shakespeare, with all his... uh, he, He ran with the tide, as a playwright has to, but all his speeches are highly spiritual. All the World's A Stage is a marvellous account of the stages you and I go through. We don't rem- remember when we were mewling and puking. We all did, I suppose. Our mother remembers that. We remember g- going to school with shiny morning face. We remember when we were either soldiers or teenagers writing love poems to each other. We remember when we vote- changed over and voted Republican and became established in the state. And I've got to the stage of the whose teeth don't fit and who whose uh, suit is getting a bit thin. There's one more stage, sans teeth, sans eyes, sans everything. <laughs> that was Shakespeare. <laughs> Seventy years earlier, Thomas More at about the age of 18 wrote them. Shakespeare loved Thomas More. They didn't meet, uh, but he knew all about Thomas More, and More's stages had the, all the same excepting had one extra one after you left this world eternity it's a marvellous he wrote it in sort of couplets did. this was as a kid that heaven meant everything to him right from the start where Shakespeare had to stop uh, when you were just about when this world was leaving you Newman in one of his great sermons says by reason alone it's 80% certain You live after the grave, but there's always a doubt whether you do. But one thing, there's no doubt in your life, this world's going to leave you. Your baby doesn't know that. For the the little children, this is the world. And the parents are the only thing they know. By the time they're eight, they're beginning to sit back. Then the tortoise dies, then this happens, then they're on their own then they suddenly fall in love, then that goes wrong, then they get, have to have surgery, then they have to have teeth out, then they fail in an exam, or they get a good job, and it goes on and on, and gradually the world leaves you. Your mother goes, your father goes, your wife goes eventually, your husband, your children even, and you're still talking to yourself. Only Thomas More, at, early in his life, had already reckoned that. So it makes a very remarkable saint he is, that he saw it the other day in the Sunday papers in London an extraordinary thing was published saying that a new play of Shakespeare had been found it's 200 years since they ever found a Shakespeare Shakespeare play and they couldn't they were working out whether it was written entirely by Shakespeare or by some of his assistants and they're using a computer that's a great advance but they're going to work out from the use of commas and by computing all the G's and I's and L's, they're going to know, and it seems pretty certain the whole play was written by William Shakespeare himself. It's, but the experts now are all gathering around the world at tex- taxpayers' expense uh, to work out <laughs> whether Shakespeare wrote this play. Good luck to them. The only interesting thing is, if he wrote it, it's, it's a play on St. Thomas More. It, 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 he brought thomas more into several of his plays uh, but it looks as though he wrote a pl- it, when more was in disgrace it looks as though uh, there was a um, the shakespeare has left a play on more which one day we'll see we hope so therefore at this meditation i was going to go on and talk about thomas more but i'll leave him till the ne- next conference because he's such a super saint for us that i might even s- scrap Uh, Saint Elizabeth Seaton, who I was going to talk about, because Moore is quite the most helpful saint of all. In my parliament, I never quite knew what to do with him. I think in my country, the judges are non-political, so in in my parliament, he nearly always was Lord Chancellor. I don't know what to do in your country, because I don't trust your Supreme Court in any way. (laughs) But Moore was a totally remarkable man. And he differed from Marcus Aurelius and everybody else that he laid down his life when he didn't have to, in fulfilling a dream which we had when he was a little boy. And I think his life's so thrilling, and he's so funny, and, quite, and he's a layman, and he brought up a large family, that really he probably ought to occupy the scene um, at the next talk. And then maybe I can adjust so the Mother Seaton, who's marvelous too, <laughs> and Cardinal Newman, for the last time, comes in as well. But I would like you to think, there were these three great statesmen, and think of the people you know in the world today, and you'd have to say, a great number, the most they've got is the state religion. And yet they've got to have surgery, and they've got to have have medical checks, and they're going to have deaths in the family, that's all they've got. And the question, who will I leave my money to when I die? Uh, they've nothing else. No wonder there are nervous breakdowns at 30 and 40. Dr. Tournier, the great Calvinist psychiatrist, quite the best of the whole of that bunch, um, he says when people come to see him by the thousand, because they've got mental troubles, he knows, and he kneels down and prays next to them, he knows their real trouble is God. Nervous breakdowns, disappointments, suicide threats, all this and the problems when you're old of being bad-tempered and not talking to anyone, it all turns on whether you have God or not. There are people like Dag Hammerskjold, you know, and I know, who do suddenly, in a strange way, become saintly almost and lead a most wonderful life by just saying yes to someone. In the case of us in retreat, that's what the Incarnation was about, that I would say yes. I'm not going to be compelled. Jesus is going to look like an ordinary man, he'll have St. Joseph his father, he'll walk around looking after the sick, and then he won't give me the faith until I say yes to him. That's how God escaped from being that terrible gorilla in a zoo, by coming down on earth and leaving, giving us what he made us to do, namely we choose. He'll give us the grace and all that, we've got to say yes. At the stage we are now. Thomas More's wonderful, as we'll see again later, because he, a young man of fifty-seven in the Tower of London, could easily have said yes to the king and be freed. Indeed, he would have had more and more honour. But his wife, the old lady Dame Alice, came to him in prison and she said, talked about his library and his garden, and she said, you've only got to agree to the king and you'll have all this and more. And he said, how long will I have it for? And she said, well, you're only 57, you may live another 57 years. (laughs) And he said, and what's that to eternity?